Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today I have on Austin Cook, who is a boutique motel investor, but I know he does way more than just that quick little line item I can give to intro him. So Austin, I'm going to turn it to you. Thank you for being here. And do you want to catch us up to speed on what you do? Give us your backstory of how you got here into this whole entire world of hospitality. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for having me on here, Natalie. So the backstory, it's a long story, but we're going to give it a really short version. (laughs) The short version is I never intended to get into real estate or hospitality in general. That's Um, what everyone says. (laughs) I'm the same way. Like it totally happened by accident. (laughs) It's funny. These happy little accidents, as Bob Ross says, and then you get this beautiful painting. So that's where we are. Basically, I used to be a mountain guide. I got injured guiding and I had to come back home. I was dead broke. Had to live in my dad's basement. And from there, you know, the plan was to just heal, recover, go to physical therapy and get back in the mountains. Well, I got a sales job in the meanwhile, and I did really well in the sales job. So basically I was selling solar panels and from selling solar panels, I went to selling insurance from selling insurance. I went to selling real estate. And then on my very first day of my real estate license, I ended up getting a a listing for way below contract and I was going to tear it down and flip it. Instead of tearing it down and flipping it, I ended up purchasing it tore the house down, split the lot into multiple lots, built multiple houses. Um, And then from there, uh, I took those profits and I started buying rental properties. Um, I accidentally bought a rental property. Well, not accidentally, but I bought a rental property in a vacation market just to try out Airbnb. It wasn't like on my radar. It seemed like a lot of work and I just wanted to do the (laughs) long rent and it just worked really well. And I was like, oh my goodness we set it up on systems and there was no work to do like literally this thing took five minutes a week after we set mm-hmm. up systems and put the right people in place so then we just started scaling that we were like how do we scale this further we were like we got to get into commercial so that's where apartments and hotels came in so this past year we started buying apartment buildings and hotels and converting the apartments to like midterm short-term and long-term rentals and then just buying hotels because it's basically just like a whole bunch of short-term rentals <laughs> So, and then we don't have to worry about regulation change. So, okay. Thank you for that. I feel like we skipped a lot of, a lot of steps and I have to know more about how some of these transitions happened. So first of all, your mountain guide injury, are you healed? Have you recovered? Yes, but I just keep getting re-injured. So I I, I ski a lot, I skydive a lot. So all these things I'm very excellent on. Okay. So, okay. So we've established that. So when you got the solar panel job, were you doing sales on the go or this was like from a computer? Like how were you going door to door while you were recovering from an injury? So I was a closer. So basically the, the company had a whole system set up where they would get me and so the other closers, there were 12 of us into people's house after they're qualified. So we'd have all their credit scores. We'd have all their information, mm. everything. We'd have financing lined up and we'd go close them on the deal. So my first job, yeah, they just sent me right into the fire. <laughs> and I, that's actually how, but you loved it enough to stay in sales. Well, I don't know if I loved it, but <laughs> after two months, I became the number one uh, closer in the company. So that's why I stayed in it. Cause I just got really good at it. So, okay. Like, okay. <laughs> so then we switched to insurance and then how did real estate happen? You just were like, I'm selling for these other companies. I'll get my own license and sell my own inventory. Sort of not really. <laughs> so basically, well, I went from solar panel to insurance because I saw that insurance was more scalable. Okay. So I, all I had to do was have a, a lower price on my insurance. And if I was sponsored by Allstate, they already trusted Allstate. So it was like, all I had to do was beat the price. So I got out of the solar panel game because it wasn't scalable. I could only do three closings a day where with insurance, mm-hmm. 
I realized that I could set up a whole cold call team, people in the Philippines that are just cold calling for me all day, getting the leads over to me. And then I could get a big referral network by bringing like coffee and donuts to real estate brokerages and auto dealers. So when they sell a new house or a new car, they would call me to write the policy. And this is how I got into real estate because one of those realtors, right, he basically called me. He's like, hey, these people, I'm selling this new house. They need some insurance. So I'd like to refer you. I was like, perfect. And they were getting ready to close. And I looked at the settlement statement and I saw that this realtor was making $10,000. Literally, I'm like sitting there. I had no idea realtors made that much money. I'm making a hundred dollars off the sale and it's the same client. So <laughs> that's where I was like, have you seen, have you seen that one meme? You know, that scene from we're the Millers and it's like Jason Sudeikis, Jennifer Aniston. Do you know what I'm talking about? And there's like this scene where they're going to go do, do the drug deal in Mexico. And then they find out how much Jason Sudeikis was making. And they're like, you were going to make 50 grand off the deal. And it's like, that's the realtor. And then the insurance agent or something, or like the, what is it? The lender is like, you were only going to make 10 grand. And then I think the person selling the insurance was like, I was only going to make a hundred. And then the like nerdy kid is just like, you guys are getting paid. And like, he's the insurance rep or something. Like, I feel like that's exactly this situation. You guys are all in on the same deal. And you were just like, this is bullshit. Why are you making more? That's hilarious. That's a good movie. I got to watch that again. <laughs> That's so funny that you mentioned that. Cause yeah, that was me at the end. I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> you You're the little nerdy kid finding out that Jennifer Aniston and Jason Sudeikis are making way more. <laughs> right. Let me go get my glasses. Right now. Um, so what you just immediately were like, I'm getting my license and abandoning all these systems I built for insurance. We're out of here. Basically so this is where my father comes in. So my father's actually been a real estate broker and a custom home builder for 45 years. Okay. So I go to my dad. I'm like, dad, oh, wait, how did you not get into this line of work already through that? <laughs> so I saw some, well, there were two reasons really. One, you know, when I was in middle school, the great recession occurred. Hmm. So, you know, I'm this middle schooler and my dad had this huge company built, this huge custom home building company. And I just saw it get wiped out overnight. And I was like, wow, I never want to get into real estate. And, you hmm. know, that is like a 14 year old, you know, it kind of imprints on you. So that was like the reason number one, I never considered it. And then reason number two is that I, I saw how much he worked for it and he just got wiped out. And then like, I remember having a conversation with him one time and basically it summed down to like, yeah, you don't have what it takes. So he basically didn't have, I think I had what it took to you know, start a real estate business because it takes a lot of hustle, a lot of drive. And all I like to do, I like climbing in the mountains. So <laughs> I'm jumping out of airplanes and he didn't see that as very salesy. So. You know, I would challenge that because I, I'm my growing up, my family always told me that I was really, really lazy. <laughs> and I like <laughs> thought that that was like a bad thing. And yeah. I have reframed that lately to where I'm like, the fact that I'm lazy has actually helped me so much because I am, I feel like similar to you where like, I will go in and like build systems that allow me to like be lazy. Like I will put in the work to make the most detailed house manual ever for my guests so that they never have to ask me a question again. And I feel like that's you. So maybe on the surface, it seems like you don't have what it takes, but you clearly built all of these systems and everything for your solar panel business, your insurance business. I think you need more credit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he, he, he appreciates it now. He's like, wow, (laughs) he's impressed now. So (laughs) a few years but you know (laughs) so we got the real estate license moved into this line of work and then you said your first listing ever you decided to buy it yourself and just tear it down where did that idea even come from did your dad help with this because of his background as a developer yeah for sure so basically the very first day i get my license i go to my dad i told him i quit my job you know (laughs) selling insurance he's like you did what (laughs) you gotta remember i'm living in his basement natalie so he's (laughs) point oh, were man. you paying rent uh no i i was just i was broke and then all of a sudden for like four months i just started making money i made a, a lot of money doing the solar panels and i started making a lot of money doing the insurance but i wasn't paying rent yet he was basically we were basically saving up so i you know get out of his basement buy a okay. place. and i was 26 years old so on your parents insurance <laughs> yeah it was not a good situation for him because he was like you know i told him i quit my job and he's like you know, you're not going to get a listing for like three to six months. He's like, you should not have quit that. You should have done it part-time. And I said, I'm going to get a listing like fast. I I told him, what do I do? And he actually hasn't like gone after a listing since like the early eighties. So he told me, you go down to the County building 
you get a copy of the legal newspaper, you see who's going into foreclosure, and you door knock on those people going into foreclosure, and you tell them that you can sell the house before the bank takes it. Well, that is a totally <laughs> 1980 approach, but I did it. So my first day of my license, right after I quit my job, I would go- Okay, this is better. I thought that this was going in the direction he was going to tell you to like read obituaries or something and go after like dead people's houses. Oh, okay. So it's it's better than I thought. Okay. That might be a more modern approach. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, I go down to the county building first day of a license. I go down and I see who's going into foreclosure. There are eight people going into foreclosure that day. I door knock. I get seven doors slammed right in my face. The eighth person, she pulls me in her house. She's bawling. She's crying. We're sitting there. I'm sitting there for four hours. At this point in the day, it's already like 5 p.m. And we're sitting there. I'm telling her, it's okay. I'm going to sell your house before the bank takes it. I get her under contract. I print out all the listing documents. And I get my very first listing on my very first day. So I go back to my dad and I show him that. And first off, he's like, I don't know how you did this. And then the paperwork. And he's like, oh my gosh, you filled everything out wrong. So <laughs> that night he taught me how to fill out listing documents and all the real estate stuff. So I went back to her the next day, got the house under contract. And I basically, how it all kind of underfold, how I started, you know, purchased it myself. I saw that this house on Zillow was worth about 250K. Now, throughout college and high school on the summers, I worked on my dad's construction sites. And basically, so I was pretty good at rehabbing and I kind of knew like estimates, how much things would cost. And I knew this house only needed about 30K worth of work. So I told her, we need to sell this fast. Let's sell it at 200,000. And then there's a 20K spread for the buyer that should do it. So we listed at 200. The very next day, we get an offer for 180,000. She said she would take it. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, she's going to take an offer for 180,000. And this thing only needs 30K worth of work. We'd be all in at 210. And we could sell it for 250. I was like, you know, would you sell me this house? And she's like, oh, absolutely. So that's where, you know, it kind of came in where I ended up going and purchasing the house. So how did you have money to do this? Had you been saving up everything from the insurance and solar panel? Very good question. And this is how I became good at raising private money. You know, one of my strong suits is raising capital. And that's what I do for the hotels and apartment buildings. And it all kind of stemmed from this moment because I thought I could get a mortgage. So I signed a purchase agreement, ripped up the other person's purchase agreement. <laughs> Did you that. ever like call that person back and just say like, hey, your offer was not accepted or he yeah, just got ghosted? They went with another offer. and uh, <laughs> Mine. <laughs> I, I get under contract and I go back and I show my dad again. And I'm like, hey, dad, check this out. I had a purchase agreement. You know, someone sent an offer. I denied their offer. I got it under purchase agreement. He's like, you're an idiot. Um, I'm like, Wait a minute. And that's like, the story of how your dad kicked you out of the basement and said you're on your own, loser. Yeah. Well, right, I know, right? That, that's, thank gosh, he has more grace than that. Oh, he's a forgiving father. Um, so, yeah, basically from there, he told me you're not going to be alone. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go to the bank. And then he's like, it doesn't work like that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you don't have a job. I was like, I'm a realtor. I have a job. <laughs> You're one day of real estate experience. <laughs> well, Natalie, I didn't know that though. That was, I was my, my naiveness and muscle just uh, kind of was what. <laughs> I, if I would have gotten stuck in that analysis paralysis, uh, I wouldn't have started. So <laughs> I just took action, and uh, it was massive, Im imperfect, very imperfect action. So. <laughs> But yeah, so basically I went to my dad. I was like, well, could you give me a loan? Could your building company, I know his building company does this all the time. I'm like, hey, could your building company give me a loan? He's like, absolutely not. He's like, <laughs> you want to be a mountain guy to going and selling insurance? No, then you're going to sell, you know, solar panels and now a real estate agent. He's like, now you want to buy the house to flip it? <laughs> He's like, you're going to get your shit together, son. And I'm like, wow, okay, that was harsh. So basically the next day I go and I call like a dozen banks and yeah, he was right. No one wanted to give me a loan. <laughs> so instead what I did on that third day is I went to all of his subcontractors because his entire building company is subcontracted. So I went to all of his subcontractors and I got quotes signed from all of the subcontractors. I got material lists from his providers, material providers, and I got basically agreements in place and I put a whole plan together and I did this all in a day of what I'm going to do to flip this house, how much money I'm going to need, what, how long it's going to take the timeline. And if I mess up in any way, 
then his superintendent, the guy that oversees all of his new construction, is going to take over the property. And then him and the superintendent will flip, will get 100% of the profits from that flip 50-50. And I'll get nothing. And basically, we structured it at like 10% interest. And all this, this company would get the money. Wait, so uh, what was in it for you? What was in it for me is that he would give me the loan. So basically, his company would give me the loan. I would give his, the company interest. And basically, I knew I needed to. That was my only shot. So I had to somehow convince him that it was safe. So I put this whole proposal together. So I went to all 17 of his subcontractors that day. And I got him to sign everything. I had everything lined up. I had material prices all lined up. I had delivery scheduled. I did it all in a day. And your dad didn't know any of this. You just went to his subcontractors and. Pretty much. And I got it all under contract. And this is, then I go back to my dad that night after dinner. I said, dad, I need 20 minutes of your time. And I pull up my computer and I give him this whole presentation. I pretty much showed him, this is how much money I need. This is what I'm going to do. This is what it's going to take. Here's what you're going to get in return. If I mess up, this is what's going to happen. And it's just like one of your normal projects. And he was like, wow. He goes, you did this in a day? I was like, yeah. He's like, I'm impressed. He's like, okay. Uh, at this point, he's like, all right, we're going we're gonna to give you the money here. You're going to buy this house. And I was like, cool. And he's like, don't mess up. Because the second you mess up with this, he goes, I'm never going to lend you again. And basically, we're going to take all the profits. I was like, that's, that's totally fair. You know, I just need to get this going. So I go and I get the money to buy this house. And it t- still to this day, I have no idea how I did all that work in a day. <laughs> I wish I could do that, Natalie. I, I don't know. I must have been like on superpower mode. Were drugs involved? I have to ask. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot of Starbucks. <laughs> no way. Uh, Stardust. So, yeah. So that's about, that's like how I got the loan for that. And then how I ended up tearing it down. Wait, so I'm still confused on the profit structure, though. Can you walk through that again? Because you said that you were going to give them all of the profits. So I mess up. So you mess up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So if I if they had to take over, they would get the profits. Okay. If they don't mess, if I don't mess up and they don't have to take over, they just get the interest. Okay. That's pretty much what happened. So So that was the safety net, basically. Okay. That was the safety net here. So his company gives me the loan. And basically from there. I see this builder down the street. <laughs> He's building two houses on little lots. I have one old junkie house on a really big lot. I go back to my dad. And I'm like, dad, what do you know about this? He goes, well, it's simple. He's like, all you got to do is you just got to see how many road frontage feet your house has and how many feet you need to build a new house. And I was like, oh, okay. So I go down to the city hall and I ask him and they're like, yeah, you have a hundred feet at your lot and you only need 50 feet to build a new house. So I'm thinking, oh, I got a double lot here. And so I go and I look and talk to that builder to see what he's selling these houses for. He was selling these houses for $450,000. Okay. So I'm thinking he's selling these houses for $450,000. I just bought this house for $180,000. If I put $10,000 into the surveys and everything, $10,000 into the demo of the house, I'm all in at two hundred. dollars That's $100,000 per lot. Okay. If the new build's selling for four hundred and fifty thousand, and I only have a hundred thousand invested in the lot, that means that if I build this house for like two hundred twenty-five thousand, which is basically at this twenty nineteen, this is what it was costing to build these houses. Then basically, I would be all in here at three twenty-five after I pay realtor fees and taxes and whatever. Per lot. Per lot. Well, per, per house. house. Per house. Per house. And then after I sell it, if I sell it at four fifty, I'm going to be paying about twenty five thousand in commissions and whatnot and fees. So that would put me at about three fifty all in, but I'm getting four fifty out. I was like, that's a hundred thousand dollar spread, and there's two of these. I was like, that's a two hundred k spread. So I go to my dad and I'm like, hey dad, I got an idea, and I tell him this idea, and he's like, absolutely not. He's like, that house is the collateral here. This is you're getting in over your head now. All this stuff. So basically I go to one of my dad's partners um, and in the company and I talked to him about it. I wasn't going to go behind my dad's will, but what I wanted is I needed more backup. I needed one of someone that he trusts telling him that this can work. You got to go get a second opinion. Exactly. And his partner was like, yeah, this is awesome. I think you're on to this. I like your hustle. I like your drive. He's like, I like what's going on here. I like the way you're thinking outside of the box. He goes, let's talk to your dad. I was like, perfect. So I go there. <laughs> 
talk to my dad and uh he's like all right this this could work and he's like in basically the same thing if anything messes up his crews will take over and they already do this every day mm-hmm. so it's new for them basically uh but he's like i'm only giving you the loan to build one of the two houses he goes after that you got to figure it out i was like perfect that's all i need i just need an opportunity to prove that i could do this and that's what i did so basically i entered the hardest 11 months of my life this was july of 2019 and i made every mistake that you can make building a house including getting shut down during covid so that's how i kind of got into the into the building and that's how my business started um i was anticipating it being really easy but it wasn't so during this time when i was building I was also door knocking foreclosures every day to try to get more listings or more buy more houses. And every single day for 11 months until basically till COVID hit, then I switched to cold calling. I got rejected every day. So I don't usually, people don't really know this, but I didn't get my second deal for 11 months. I got mm-hmm. my first deal on the very first day. And then I went through 11 months of trials and tribulations until I could get my second deal. And getting rejected every single day was demoralizing. Like literally the door slammed in my face, the f- getting hung up on the phone. You were still building this one property during that time though, right? Correct. So I was okay. working 80 to 90 hours a week because I was not only trying to build the business, but I was also working on that house every mm-hmm. day on the job site multiple times a day. And then on top of that, I was working as a, as a buyer's agent for Zillow. So basically I was doing Zillow leads. Then that's how I was paying off any kind of payments I had that the money from the Zillow. So I was working three jobs at the time. Okay. That's what I was going to ask too, was how were you like sustaining payments during this whole time when you had 11 months of building? Yeah. And that's it. So I was selling, slinging houses off Zillow and it was brutal. What is the pay like in those Zillow structures? I always see those Zillow agents and wonder like what that is. It's whatever is basically how it works is they broker like it's a marketing, like they broker marketing for you. And then clicks on it, it's whatever your actual real estate brokerage is. So they just kind of act kind of like Airbnb is just the the channel, the marketing channel. Same thing with Zillow. It's the marketing channel to get those agents. So, but once you get the buyer and you're representing them, you're fully on your own. Zillow's not in the picture anymore. Okay. Yep. They just connect you. Okay. So, and then you give them like a flat fee for a connection. So, okay. Uh, and yeah, so that's what I did. So I was working three jobs, worked 80 to 90 hours a week for those 11, well, really for the first three years of my business, but those 11 months specifically. And, you know, finally COVID lifts, I'm all done. I'm feeling demoralized, but I finally get the house done. Now it's, now it's June of 2020. And if you remember the housing market in June of 2020, Natalie, it was bonkers. Like that's when things just started flying off the shelf. So I get this house done and I got, you know, I poured my heart and soul into this thing and I listed on the market. I'm thinking, man, I'm going to get multiple offers. This thing is beautiful. And the goal was 450, right? To sell for 450. Goal was to sell for 450. Okay. Well, (laughs) one week goes by, no offers. Two weeks go by, no offers. Three weeks go by, no offers. And Where I, did you build this thing? Like in, in a swamp under a bridge? Like, <laughs> no, it's in my hometown, Natalie. Look, if anyone wants to look this up, Plymouth, Michigan, beautiful little place, Hallmark Town. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> the swamp. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, you find Shrek next door and Donkey. So, um, what is wrong with this house? How horrible did you design this thing? <laughs> oh man. Anyway, so. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking at this point, three weeks went by, I'm going to get a low ball offer. And I'm just thinking like, I'm demoralized, you know, for the last 11 months, I put my heart and soul in this. I kept messing up. You know, we just went through a COVID lockdown. I'm living in my dad's basement. I'm a 26 year old, just dead broke, literally owe hundreds of thousands of dollars to his building company. And getting a loan from your dad is not easy. Like he just, he was ferocious, just breathed down your neck every day. When you're not doing something related to business, he's like, Hey, what are you doing to get that money back? And it's like, oh gosh. And you lived with him. <laughs> and I lived in his basement, yeah. And you know, at the time, I was in a really toxic relationship with a woman, and I didn't have relationships with my friends and family because all I was doing was working for the last eleven months, and I was literally getting rejected every day, door knocking, cold calling. 
Um, didn't have a second deal in the works. And I hate admitting this. Like I genuinely hate it because I'm not a quitter. But if I didn't owe my dad and his business all that money, I would have quit. Like there's no, like no ifs, ands, or buts. I was so broke. It was a Saturday night. And I vividly remember, because this was the turning point for me, I fell to the floor in my dad's basement. And I just started crying. I fell into the fetal position. This is a 26-year-old man. And I just had an all-on breakdown. And I just started crying. And uh, I started praying. And at the time, I was an atheist. And I started praying to God. And I don't know where this came from, because I haven't pr- prayed at that point in like 10, 15 years. I genuinely just started, I opened my heart to the Holy Spirit. And I just prayed to God. That I said, is real estate for me? Like, why am I going through this? Like, why? I have no friends. I have no family now. Like, I'm stuck in this basement. I owe all this money. My house isn't selling. I'm getting rejected. Like, what is this? Like, is real estate for me? What am I supposed to do? Please, you know, give me a sign. Help me. And I wake up the next morning. I fell asleep on the floor. And uh, just, I wake up the next morning, go about my day. It's a Sunday. That Monday after that. So two days after that event. I get a phone call from an agent and an agent says, Austin, check your email and check my email full price offer on the house. So I get a second offer that afternoon or well, I get a second phone call. She said, Austin, check your email. Second full price offer on this house. Now I had a decision to make. I was thinking, okay, so I either have to get into a bidding war, but I have this empty lot next door. I was like, how can I make both these offers count? So this is where I kind of go through the rabbit hole, do a bunch of research that day. And I find out something about a buyer's end construction loan. And essentially what that is, is getting the buyer to basically get a loan on the lot. They're going to take out a mortgage on that lot. And then I get paid up front to build the house on that lot. And I have like a set a time allotment to do that. So basically I convinced one of those two buyers to do that, to take the buyers and construction loan, to get a mortgage on the empty lot. And then the other buyer was just going to buy the house that I did. So at this point, I'm thinking like, um, like, this is fantastic. We're going to, let's go. So I, it took about a month to get it closed. Uh, so now we're about in August of 2020. And I still didn't connect the dots though, between what happened that night, the prayer and God actually answering my prayer and showing me that real estate was for me. That took months down the road, but I just want to clarify that I didn't realize that right now. <laughs> the uh, next day you were getting baptized, fully yeah. converted. <laughs> yeah. So it just took me a minute, but you know, God is the guy working behind me and he works through mm-hmm. me and I have owed all to him. But uh, basically from there, I ended up getting paid for the profits from my house I just built. So I got about a hundred thousand and then I got the profits up front by the way I structured the deal for this lot next door. So I paid everything off my dad and I ended up with a $200,000 profit. So what I did with that money is I started door knocking every double lot in my hometown. And I found another lady who needed to sell her house. She had to go down to Florida to help her dad with something. I was like, well, how fast do you want to sell? She's like, now. I was like, okay, well, how much do you want for the house? She said, 200,000. And I was thinking, bingo, that's exactly the amount I have. So basically I would go through and I buy this house for 200,000. And I get the house basically tore down, both lots split. And I have basically that first house that I built. I made an agreement with the lady that I could use that as a model home and I could show it at any time. So I have like put ghost listings on the MLS and I use her pictures of her house and all the marketing from her house to sell these two empty lots. And now, you know, the market at the time was super hot. So I get two offers like basically instantly and I get both of these lots under contract and within another 30 days. I have those sold. So now we're kind of into October of 2020 and I have those sold. I get the profits up front and I doubled the money. And so I'm from like 200,000 to 400. And then I did that eight times over that year. I just kept doing double lots, double, double lots. Okay. You have to do the math for me on that. So what did we end up with? A lot. Yeah. So it was like, you know, yeah, well into the seven figure range. And I took all that money and I started buying houses cash in my hometown. Okay. I I need to pause before we move into buying houses. Hold on. We need to stay on this. One question that comes to mind is how did you know when you pre-sold those lots before the house was built? Because during COVID, the cost of materials went up so, so, so much. Was there Mm -hmm. any fear 
that like your profit margin was going to slim down at all? So they did slim down. They definitely did. So I would okay. say like one of the houses, it, it depends. So the like, lumber prices go up, lumber prices go down. Depends when we bought it. Good thing is, you know, we were doing the houses in like stages. So we'd mm -hmm. start one, we'd wait like a month, then we'd start the next. Then we, because we didn't have enough room on each site to store all the materials. So okay. on a couple of the houses, we got stuck with huge lumber bills, like 30K, like yeah. even profit. So like instead of making a hundred and make like 70. So yeah, okay. definitely. It was brutal. Okay. <laughs> but I wasn't, also I wasn't smart enough at the time. I didn't have enough knowledge to know that I should include something like that in the contract. Mm. Okay. Or if there's an increase that the buyer has to cover it. Now that's what I would do now. And I also was just going so fast. I just knew that this is the one opportunity I was given. And I couldn't, I basically, you know, it took me 11 months to get to this point and I couldn't let it go to waste. I just had to build on that momentum, that snowball effect. Okay. Uh, so this is my follow-up question. Once you got the two buyers, you got those two offers at full price, you figured out this, you know, loan for the construction deal and you have 200K in your hand. Mm -hmm. How, how at that point did you have like the morale to go to another lot and be willing to spend 200,000? Like, I know that we always say in real estate, like, don't cash in on the money you got. You have to keep reinvesting it to grow. But I just feel like after everything you went through, crying on the floor in the fetal position, like no relationships in your life. How were you not just like 200K? I'm going to go celebrate. I got out of this. I'm done. Uh, how did you literally? I'm like, where was you? Your, your willpower is just insane to be like, no, I'm good now. I'm good. I bounced back and I can do this 10 more times. <laughs> do you remember episode 68 where I got to interview Kenny Bedwell, the CEO at STR Insights? Well, since his episode dropped, I have heard multiple success stories from no vacancy listeners who have been able to find their next property thanks to Kenny and his team at STR Insights. If you've been wondering if the property or market you are looking at will be a good investment, or if you have no idea what market or property to start looking at, please take advantage of the free call that STR Insights is offering no vacancy listeners. You have nothing to lose. With their 100% success rate, I am confident that you'll be in good hands working with STR Insights. Whether you're looking for cash flow, cash on cash return, or long-term appreciation, STR Insights will first help you define your goals and then identify the market and property that is right for you. The team is made up of STR investors and operators themselves, so they know exactly what to look for in terms of a good market and property, and will make sure that you can legally operate in the areas they point you to. If you're ready to join the dozens of No Vacancy listeners who have already started working with STR Insights to find their next property, just click the link in my show notes to schedule your free call and get you one step closer to finding that perfect deal. I, I think it comes from seeing my dad lose everything. So I saw him mm -hmm. lose everything when I was a kid. And I realized that like, if I don't make solid investments, if I don't build, you know, build when you have the chance, then you're never going to do it. And I've grown up, you know, obviously my father's wealthy. So I've grown up in a good position where I never really, this was like the first time that I actually had the struggle. Like as a kid, I never struggled. So like, you know, not being able to like go on vacation and just struggling for a year, it didn't, it wasn't like this thing for me where, oh, this is the first time I've ever, you know, had the opportunity to go on vacation. You know, growing up, we'd go on vacation all the time or like, you know, growing up, we'd go to nice dinners all the time. So I think that probably had a help with it, like a play, because it's like something that I've already, you know, experienced growing up. And this was like my shot to do something with it. And my goal never was really to make a lot of money. My goal at this point was first to get out of the bad financial situation I was in so I can get out of my dad's basement. And then after that, the goal became, I want to make my dad proud. I want to show him that I could do this. And like, not out of like spite or pity, but literally out of love. Cause it's like, you know, I saw him sacrifice so much when we were kids and I want to make him proud. I want to show him that I could do what he's done. And that was like my driving force behind amplifying it and just going into the next thing, taking all that money and reinvesting it right away. Because I knew that the second that if I like held on to that, <laughs> like you said, no matter how much, you know, if you've already experienced things or not, the willpower is going to break. Mm -hmm. And that whole thing is I took action quick. And the, you know, if I would have probably sat on it, yeah, we might have been going. You didn't even that. give yourself a chance to enjoy it. It was just exactly. like immediately we're reinvesting. Exactly. 
so you know that's that's another part to it. It's like I just knew you had to go quick. Just like you know, if you make a lot of money and you're just like you need to like invest it right away. So otherwise, it's gonna start disappearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so basically, and that's how we got we got to where we were. We started buying houses, and basically, I accidentally bought one that wasn't on a double lot, and I couldn't do the lot split, so I ended up flipping it instead. Mm-hmm. And so basically, I got into house flipping from there. And basically from that which work, was the original goal. And then we took this whole detour. <laughs> yeah, we got into the development rabbit hole. And then from <laughs> the development rabbit hole, I started buying, you know, that's how we got the money to start buying houses cash. And I wasn't smart enough to understand leverage. I did not know like the concept of leverage. So I was but instead of, you know, I could have bought 10, 10 times the amount of houses, but I didn't because mm-hmm. I didn't realize I didn't know anything about really how funding worked or how lending worked. I was just like, Hey, you know, if I buy this cash, the bank can never take it from me. So, and that was basically the fear for me as a child seeing what happened. So I just bought a bunch of houses cash. And then from there ended up partnering with someone on a flip. His name's Nick Bastinelli. And we did really good on this flip. And we were like, Hey, I was sitting on a beach in Florida. This was new year's for 2022. So I've only been in the hospitality game for uh, about a year and a half now. And we were, I was sitting at an Airbnb in Florida, in Miami. And I was like, wow, it would be so cool to own an Airbnb. So I texted my buddy, Nick, who we were flipping houses with. And I was like, hey, you want to buy an Airbnb together? He's like, yeah, definitely. Let's do it. So we took our money and we bought an Airbnb in Traverse City, Michigan, near Lake Michigan. And it worked really well. So within 30 days, we bought a second one. And that's how we got and got into the Airbnb space. Okay. Okay. So we were done with, were you still developing or flipping anything on the side? And this was just kind of like a side project or you fully pivoted? Yeah. So last year I was still pretty heavy in the flipping and I'm still developing. I'm still building. So actually right now I'm building four houses, but they're actually all for Airbnb. So I'm developing Airbnbs for myself now, instead of selling them to buyers, I'm basically raising the private capital building the house. And for each one, I'm, I'm all in at about 450,000, but they're worth about 600. So it's mm-hmm. a uh, cash out refi. So basically burring Airbnbs right now. Okay. Yeah. And now can we talk about how we got into motels and hotels from? For sure. So what I realized is, you know, my portfolio was growing. So I had about oh, 18 or so houses, single family houses. And I was like, wow, like, this is, this is awesome, but how can I take this to the next level? And Nick and I were actually coming back from our second Airbnb closing. We were driving home and we were listening to my podcast. I was on the Brent Daniels podcast for TTP and we listened to it. And then we listened to the podcast episode after mine, this guy named Tim Bratz was on there and Tim Bratz is a huge apartments indicator. He has like 5,000 units and we were like, holy smokes. This is our next move. We need to get into the commercial game. That's how we're going to scale. So basically from there, we joined his mastermind. We learned everything that we could about, you know, raising private capital, about commercial real estate, all that. And that was last year. So that was basically July of 2022 is when we joined that. And then, so we took about six months to kind of gear up. And then this, this January we purchased... Um, our first hotel. We were going after apartments, but my my partner Nick last fall was staying at that fall it was like August, but uh, he was staying at a hotel in Northern Michigan. He saw this old man just working really hard, and he was like, "Dude, you're working really hard. Do you own this?" And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, "How old are you?" The guy's like seventy eight or something. <laughs> he's like, "Man, do you want to retire?" And the guy's like, "I do want to retire." <laughs> Uh, but he's like, but my wife loves this place. Nick's like, well, let's talk. So then they started talking. They got some numbers and basically Nick gave me the lowdown. We underwrote it together when he came back like that next week. And as soon as that deal worked, I was like, oh my gosh, we have to get back up there. We have to give them a letter of intent right now. So the next day I drove up there a four hour drive, met them at their kitchen table and got the letter of intent signed at their kitchen table. That purchased the place. It was a $2.5 million purchase. All in, we're all in right now at $3.2 million, and it's worth about four point eight. So it was like a clear cash out refi deal mm-hmm. for this thing. And that's exactly what we did. So 
So where where are apartments on the radar now? You did this whole apartment mastermind and everything, <laughs> learned about how to syndicate those, and you're just like, whatever, we found a hotel instead. Yeah, so we have, we realized that some of the concepts are very similar, you know, okay. for a hotel. And we bought the hotel, and we were like, well, we still want to do apartments. So then three months later, in or four months later, in April, we ended up buying an apartment building. Okay. And it's just been no fun. It's been like, never. <laughs> Man, it's been a nightmare. So I thought that the hotel would be more fun than the apartment right. complex. Exactly. <laughs> would have thought that. So yeah, so that's from there. We were like, wow, what's more fun? They're both like profitable, but what cash flows more right now are hotels because in the Midwest, hotels are typically trading, you know, between a nine and an eleven percent cap rate. Where in the Midwest, apartments are typically trading between a six and a seven percent cap rate. And with interest being like 8% today, it doesn't really make that much sense for an apartment because they're not cash flowing. So, because the, the cap rate is still so decompressed. So until the cap rate- Can you, know, you explain what the cap rate is? Yeah, basically. So your cap rate or your capitalization rate, how you get to that number is you take the you take your purchase price, right? And you take how much money the property is making. So it's something called your NOI, your net operating income. And basically you divide that. So let's say you have a million dollar. Let's make the numbers really easy. Let's say you're, you're buying a property for a million dollars, right? And let's say the revenue on this thing is, well, what is 200,000, but it, 50% of that goes to expenses. So what your actual, your net operating income would be 50% of that revenue, which is a hundred thousand. So that's how much like your, your actual net operating income is. Divide that by that purchase price of a million, you get 10%. And that's the cap rate. So basically, the cap rate's a way to evaluate real estate um, without having to take funding into account. So, and that's how you can evaluate commercial real estate. Okay. So you're saying hotels in the Midwest are doing nine to, what did you say, nine to 10%, and apartments are doing six to seven? Yeah, most hotels are trading between nine and eleven percent. Nine and eleven. Okay. And most apartments in the Midwest are trading between six and seven percent cap rate. Okay. So if you think about how that relates to interest, as interest increases, the cap rate will also slowly start to increase because the if they can't basically if you're buying the apartment at a higher interest rate, you're not going to make any money. So the part the price of the apartment has to go down in order for you to still make money if you have a higher interest rate. Mm. So that's how that cap rate starts to increase with the raise of the uh, interest. But we're not seeing that yet. They're staying pretty stable. They have increased a little bit, but not a ton over the past year. It's not like an instant adjustment. It takes time to catch up with each other. Yeah, it takes a lot of time because there's not as many commercial sales as residential sales. Mm -hmm. So it takes a while for that price to really change. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a slow increase in that cap rate for... uh, commercial real estate, but not fast enough. So that's why like the hotels just made sense because they're selling at a higher cap rate in general. And then also in seasonal areas, there's less institutional money going after hotels. So like the areas we're in, (laughs) in the winter, the Starbucks and the grocery store closes down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're in a place like that, institutional money is not going to come after it. So we have less competition in that sense. So that's kind of another reason why we started going after hotels. And from there, you know, we, we closed on another one a couple of weeks ago. That's in another vacation town and we're closing on another one next month. So. And know. are you buying like just mom and pop brand little motels and hotels or are you going after like old, you know, best Westerns or whatever, like these chains? <laughs> no, definitely not the best Western. We're doing that. Um, yeah. So we're going after non-branded mom and pop hotels. Okay. Now, why is because we have more control right now over that. So we don't have to have like planned improvements. Like, you know, you could buy a days in or a holiday in or something and they could just say, hey, you need to redo the lobby, the hallways and all the bedrooms. It's like, oh, if you keep the franchising. Yes. If you got it. Okay. So it's like with this, you know, we have to kind of reinvent the wheel. We had to put our whole system in place. We had to create a system. We had to create, you know, all the software, you know, all the standard operating procedures and everything. However, we have more control over that now. So once you create the wheel, you know, you can just roll it, keep rolling it into mm-hmm. the next problem. So that's kind of where why we did it this way. And we just don't really plan to really get into the franchise game yet. 
What we actually plan to do is we plan to get 20, 25 of these hotels and then create our own franchise based off that. Oh, cool. That's so are you work. currently like branding them to kind of match each other a little bit, like with that goal in mind, or for now they're just, you know, yeah. whatever the design was, you're trying to like low cost rehab it as little as possible. Yeah. So actually it's, it's kind of a hybrid there. So like the Bay end of Petoskey, you know, we put about 700,000 into that. We made, it's a really beautiful place now and it's more like high end boutique style where the one that we just purchased in Mackinac is Vindel Motel. And that one's a little bit lower end. So it's not like the Vind or the Bay Inn sits on a hundred foot cliff overlooking Lake Michigan, where the Vindel is like a more of like a traditional motel or like in the city, like on like near tourist activities. Um, okay. It's like, it's like a tourist shop and everything. So like that one, we're both inheriting customer bases already. And we mm-hmm. changed the customer base on the Bay Inn. And we didn't think like, we were like, okay, we don't need a phone number for this thing. We're just going to, you know, ride into the Philippines. You know, we don't need cable TV. We didn't take into account who our avatar was, who our customer was at the time. And we lost a lot of business because of that. Mm-hmm. We ended up being up 34% this year compared to the old owners, but we could have done a lot more than that. We could have been up like 50% if we didn't lose some of the old customers, like the repeat re- return customers. So on this next hotel we just purchased, you know, we kept the cable TV, we kept the exact same phone number, we kept the same website, we're just updating it, all these things so that the older generation can still reach us and rebook with us. Well, one thought I have on that, like, I definitely see it's valuable to keep the existing customer base, but I'm assuming that you raised prices from what was previously being charged. Mm-hmm. And I could almost argue if you keep the same customer base, it's harder to raise prices on them, like they might be used to why is it so much more expensive? We used to pay this like in a certain way that the customer base would have churned anyway. And it's kind of easier to implement new prices. I don't know. Yeah, that's a true, that's a true good thought there. I guess, you know, the way we could have countered that too, is that we could have done like a tiered pricing thing. So we could have like for repeat referral, cause we inherited their whole customer base. You know, we could have done yeah, it so like loyalty points or something. Yeah. We do like step ups where you know it's only going to be this much more for them this year and then next year this mm-hmm. month and by that third year they're full price something like that yeah because we just lost a lot of momentum going into this year we're we're definitely we're you know like I said we're beating their the old owners revenue by quite a bit but you know at the same time it, you're right though I mean, we, that could have happened too so I don't know I guess we'll never know on there's this. no way to know <laughs> so, but yeah now we're just buying hotels and building a new construction Airbnbs. So the one apartment complex, did you guys decide to sell that or was it just already running at that point? So you're just letting it do its thing. Yeah. So we're just letting it do its thing. We finally, finally, finally are finishing construction on it next week. Everything that could have gone on. What? No, it's not. So it's not right. We've been working on it. So basically we bought it in April. And all the tenants were supposed to be out. Some, so half of them were supposed to be out in May. The other half were supposed to be out at the end of June. And we had a bunch of people that just didn't leave. So we had... <laughs> How many units? So it's seven townhouses. Oh, um, okay. They're big. So they're like 1,250 square foot units. Wow. Uh, you know, so they're two or three bedroom, one and a half bath. They all have basements. They all have laundry rooms. So they're like big units. <laughs> and like these... Two people, well, three of them didn't leave. Two of them we had to start evicting. And one of them is still fighting us in court and just not going. So I think basically, I think there's like three more weeks left until we're apartments able- are hard. Like it- that whole side of things, people don't talk about it. But hotels, you can shut it down for construction. You can be working on this half and, and renting out that half. Apartments are hard. There's so yeah. much like emotion tied to it and families living there. It's tough. It is tough and they're just not as fun. Like it's yeah. just not as exciting as a hotel where you just, you know, make it as cool as you want, add these amenities and you get money in return. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what happened with the families who stayed there? Were you at least able to start construction and like rehab everything else and work around them? Or you had to evict everyone before you could? Move yes. So you have basically of the seven townhomes, only one of them has a family still, it's not a family, it's a guy, but <laughs> this guy is still living there. And it's just one guy. I yeah. would have had more sympathy for like the single mom with her three kids and the dog. 
oh, my yeah. God, you can't move. No, yeah, it's just like, dude, and he's just, he's been a menace, man. He's just been doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Like one time we got a call from a neighbor saying he was lining pallets around all the building and like lining the building of garbage. And I'm just like, what is happening? Like, why are you doing this, man? So like, who takes garbage out of the dumpster and lines it around the building? Like, yeah, so that that's that, Natalie. But the thing is, hotels are fun. Apartments, well, maybe someday. Austin, I have to wrap up here, but I think that we need to do a part two because your story was like so fascinating to listen to that we barely even talked about operating hotels, and that's what I thought we were going to talk about today. So, if you're open to it, we may need a we may need to book a second call here and record a follow up. But thank you so much for just being so open and sharing everything. There were so many points of your story that I could really relate to. When were you? How old are you? How old do I look? <laughs> well, because you said that you went through the crash in middle school, which so did I. I think that we're the exact same age. I just turned 30 in September. Yeah, I'm 30. So. Okay. Are you, were you born in 93? 93. Let's okay. Go. Knew it. Just all the like parallels you said in your story. I was like, I'm pretty sure we're the, we're the exact same age. Yeah. And there's just so many points of your story that I think people are going to like really resonate to. So yeah, thank you for just being so open. I loved, I loved that whole journey. You just took a lot of messy, imperfect action. I think, and one thing I'm going to, I'm going to like fight you on, you said that you should have taken debt, that you shouldn't have bought those houses in cash, right? And that like, that was a mistake. You could have multiplied your investment. I would not at all like have any regrets about that journey. If you added additional loans on top of what you were doing, it would have broke you. I really do. Like, I think you can Monday morning quarterback it and go back and look at how it was different, but I don't know. I think that your story was like exactly perfect to lead you here. So yeah. I, you cannot have any regrets about that. Like you did it perfectly for what you, how your story was supposed to unfold. I love it. I guess so. <laughs> here we are. We're doing all right. So <laughs> Austin, thank you so much. How can people connect with you if they want to learn more from you? We'll have you back on. But in the meantime, if somebody wants to connect with you, where should they go? Yeah. So the best way is on Instagram. It's at Austin Cook. However, my name's spelled a little funky. It's A-U-S-T-O-N-C-O-O-K, spelled with an O, so I'm Austin with an O. So <laughs> We'll Austin. just link that. You can just click the link below. <laughs> can we go. also get links to your hotels if somebody wants yeah. to check them out or book them? We'll get your links for that. Okay, so. we'll put those in the show notes as well. Thank you cool. so much, Austin. Thank you so much, Natalie. All right, hosts, can we keep it real for a sec? Are you absolutely fed up with constant changes from third-party booking platforms switching up your listing ranking randomly? Well, I've got a secret weapon for boosting your bookings and increasing guest loyalty. Introducing StayFi, your ultimate tool for gathering guest information, guest marketing, and fostering brand loyalty. How does it work? Have you ever visited a coffee shop where you enter your email in order to get on the Wi-Fi? StayFi operates the exact same way. Every single guest, not just the one who made the booking, has to provide their information when connecting, so you can start building your email list to stay in touch with every guest you've ever hosted. StayFi provides you with advanced email and text marketing tools to communicate with that growing contact list. As you cultivate your thriving list of subscribers, one quick email or automated series can turn into dozens of bookings where you are not relying on your OTA's algorithm. Impressive, right? So use code NOVACANCY for an exclusive 50% off your first three months with StayFi. It's not just about attracting new guests. It's about transforming one-time visitors into lifelong customers. Don't wait any longer to start building that contact list and use code NOVACANCY today to kickstart your guest loyalty program with StayFi. To lock in your StayFi discount and start cultivating your engaged guest list, go to stayfi.com slash NOVACANCY and watch your bookings soar. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, this one is absolutely going to piss you guys off. It absolutely pissed me off. So let's read this, shall we? This host says, the guest requested early check-in, which I gave them five hours early. They stayed two nights and then request to extend their stay for a third night and asked for a discount. I gave them 10% off the third night. Then they leave a three-star review and this is their private note. Are you guys ready for this review? Three stars. Publicly, they said, had a good stay. Private feedback. 
I gave you the best rating that I could for the place, considering my expectations were not met in a few areas, like no TVs in bedrooms, no coffee maker, no shampoo and conditioner other than little one squeeze bottles for one use. The camera outside the door made me feel really awkward and didn't give me any sense of privacy whatsoever. No lamp in the living room, always had to use the overhead light, which is very bright. All uh, the place was very, very basic and felt like my privacy was intruded by having the camera outside the unit. I won't be staying there again unless there are a lot of changes. Either way, if you could leave me a review as I still have given you a decent one besides the private note. Thanks. Y'all. Let's take this point by point, okay? And actually, let me add this. The host did say in their original post, we do have a whole coffee station, coffee maker, coffee, tea, etc. included. We do not advertise TVs in the bedrooms, and the doorbell camera is disclosed in the listing. We've had all five-star reviews, but this one. The public review isn't bad. Would you bother messaging the guest? Let's take this point by point, okay? They get a five-hour early check-in, and then they decide to extend their stay and ask for a discount on that, which they got. Would you really want to extend your stay if this place was so, so effing horrible? Let's go point by point in the private note. I gave you the best rating that I could for the place considering my expectations were not met in a few areas, like no TVs in the bedrooms. Why was that your expectation when the host says we don't advertise TVs in the bedroom? No coffee maker. Host here clearly states there is a whole coffee station, coffee maker, coffee, tea, etc. included, okay? No shampoo and conditioner, Listen, no shampoo and conditioner other than the little one squeeze bottles for one use. That is what you get in a hotel where you're staying for two nights, which is what they booked. That is more than enough for staying in a place for two nights. So why is that not enough here? And I, I, I just can't get over this phrasing. There was no shampoo and conditioner. Oh, other than the, than the bottles. Other than the shampoo and conditioner that was there, there was no shampoo and conditioner. Okay, got it. The camera outside the door made me feel really awkward, even though it was publicly disclosed that there was a camera there, and didn't give me any sense of privacy whatsoever. <laughs> they say, the place was very basic. It felt like my privacy was intruded by having a camera outside the unit. How was a camera outside the unit intruding on your privacy when you were inside the home? Can you explain? Can you please explain? The one, the only one thing I will give them credit for here is when they say there was no lamp in the living room and we always had to use the overhead light, which is very bright. I mean, I wouldn't give three stars over that, but lighting is a pet peeve of mine and I hate when I have to use overhead lighting. The rule in my house is like after 5 p.m., basically no overhead lights can go on. That is only task lighting for when I am cooking and meal prepping. Besides that, no overhead lights go on after 5 p.m. Like I want dimly, dim lights 720 kelvin light bulb temperature that is what i want cozy warm vibes no overhead lighting past 5 p.m so that that would bug me but i mean come on not a three-star rating come on this is such an unfair such an unfair review um and then the just cherry on top either way if you could leave me a review as i still have given you a decent one thanks no no, first of all, you can't even leave a review for this guest anymore because once this posts publicly, that's it. You can't go back and write one if you didn't. Are you kidding me? Either way, could you leave me a good review as I still gave you a decent one? How is this a decent review? Three stars? How does this person think this is a decent review? This is so upsetting. I really hope that this host can get this removed. I think that they can because they're bringing up things like the TVs in the bedroom and the doorbell camera making them uncomfortable and thinking that there were TVs when the host says that none of that was disclosed. I think they'll be able to get this removed, but I just, oh my gosh, guests like this. Are you kidding me? Why are you extending your stay if it's literally so horrible? You were provided amenities for what was supposed to be a two-night stay. That shampoo and conditioner should have been plenty for that. When you add the third night, that's no longer the host's fault that there wasn't enough shampoo or conditioner for you and you're asking for a discount, apply that discount to go buy your own shampoo and conditioner, okay? This guest is so out of line. This is such an unfair review. They are obviously the Airbnb hole, and I really hope that this host can get this removed. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. 
Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.